Hey guys, you're listening to episode 76 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Mario Zanstra, president and CEO of Family Legacy. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Mario Zanstra, president and CEO of Family Legacy, which has empowered children and their surrounding communities in Zambia over the last 20 years. Mario began his career in commercial real estate for 17 years before pivoting to a full-time role in nonprofit management. He has since led multiple major organizations and has collected quite a few stories along the way. You won't want to miss this one. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you guys that everything we do here on the Finish Line team is 100% free and always will be. If you're getting a lot out of this podcast and want to help us get the message out to others, the best thing you can do for us right now is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first one to know when new episodes come out. With that, let's get to the interview. All right. We have Mario Zanstra joining us. Thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today, Mario. Really do appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Can you get us started today? Just tell us a little bit about your own background. Sure. I mean, I'm a father of seven kids, a grandfather of 12 kids, been married to my wife, Linnell, for 40 years. I live in Dallas, Texas, and love life. I mean, I think about where I am in life, and I can't imagine anything better. So tell us a little bit more about your upbringing and your kind of transition into working life and how God started to interact with some of that story along the way. Oh, well, thank you. I was born in the Netherlands, in The Hague. My parents moved to the United States when I was two, and I grew up in East Los Angeles to an eighth grade educated mom and a 10th grade educated dad. There was no thought at all that any of our kids would go to college. We lived in a very blue-collar neighborhood. And I had a high school administrator who said, you know what, Mario, you're pretty smart. I think you can go to college. Didn't even know what that meant. But this administrator, Mr. Diaz, helped me fill out my college applications. I ended up getting accepted to three different colleges and got a gigantic scholarship to the University of Southern California. And that's where I went to school and uh, was the first person in the Zanstra family, at least our Zanstra family, to get a college degree. I got a degree in business and a minor in chemistry. That's a long time ago, but man, it was amazing to have that opportunity to go to college. And out of my high school of 800 students, only eight of us graduated from college, and there were more people in jail than graduated from college at our 10-year anniversary. Wow, that's pretty incredible. I'm just really excited to hear what happened next when you did graduate from college. Where did life take you? Well, I think really before I talk about graduating college, I had an interesting experience in college. When I was a junior and I was not a believer, did not know Jesus, I was living in my fraternity house. And in the span of 14 days, seven people I knew died. My grandmother, my high school girlfriend's father, my little league coach, a whole slew of different people. But the one that probably rocked me the most was a woman who was the head volunteer for Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew, 
She died getting hit by a drunk driver going into the main gate at USC. That kind of totally rocked me because I thought if she could die, I could die. And that threw me into a total tailspin. I won't give you all the gory details of the tailspin, but one day I was in my fraternity house and it was a football day and I gave my date, my, her ticket to the game, and I said, I'll meet you at the game. And literally had a freak out moment in my fraternity house thinking I was by myself and I screamed just in despair. And this one guy in my fraternity happened to still be there and he said, Z-Man, is that you? I was in the main bathroom and I said, it was me. And he said, what's going on? And I explained to him what was going on. And, and he said, hey, do you mind if I pray for you? I had never had anybody in my life pray for me. So he prayed for me. And and then when he got done, he said, if I could share something with you that would help you with what's going on in your life, would you be willing to hear? And I said, sure. So he shared the gospel with me, got done and said, would you like to trust Jesus as your savior? And I said, no, that's not for me. <laughs> and anyway, he shared with me three more weeks, three Thursday nights in a row. And on the fourth attempt at the gospel with me, Steve said, hey, Mario, what's holding you back? What's stopping you from trusting Jesus? And I said, well, I'm just not good enough. And he got this crazy little smile on his face and he said, exactly. And you'll never be good enough. But Christ was more than good enough. And I said, well, I don't totally understand. And he shared 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, he who knew no sin, Jesus became sin on your behalf so that you might be called the righteousness of God. I said, well, what do I do? And he said, well, it's Time to trust Christ. And at that moment, I turned my life over to Christ. And that was the beginning of a crazy adventure. That was 1977. And here we are 40 plus years later. And, you know, Steve and I actually still talk every month. And he's been a great disciple maker and led many, many. He led 50 of our fraternity brothers to Christ out of 102. So his legacy is is vast. That was the beginning of a great spiritual journey. Yeah, so I'm sure that radically altered the course of where you thought things might be going from there. What happened, you know, from the rest of college and on into your life afterwards? Well, I think the first thing that went on is that, you know, there's this immense joy that you feel. And I could tell that something was radically different. Of course, you know, being a brand new believer and all the junk that I was kind of was part of my life before I kind of went into this sin management program, which obviously doesn't work. It's pretty hard to manage the old self yet when you're the new self. So I knew I was in the midst of the already, but not yet. But it was a process of me changing radically. But then I ended up, you know, finishing college and I had a degree in business and I got my first job out of college and moved to Texas. And while in that first job, I met my wife in a Sunday school class at a church. Mind you, I had never been a member of a church until after coming to Christ. And so that was even a crazy experience, too. The guy that led the Bible study in my fraternity, unbeknownst to me, had become a youth pastor in Dallas. And I was visiting churches and I was walking down the hallway of this church. And I looked up and I was going, oh, my goodness, Murray? And he said, Mario, what are you doing here? I said, what are you doing here? Anyway, long story short, I ended up teaching high school Bible study with Murray as a brand new believer to a bunch of high school boys. And, and that's really the story of my life. The scarlet thread that you can see throughout your life became very, very evident early on. And at that church is where I met my wife and in a big single Sunday school class. And we got married after a couple of years. And now we've been married 40 years, which is just hard to fathom. 
That is really cool. I love hearing stories of how God works through moments, but also over long periods of time and just starts to weave things together. And it's not a coincidence that you ran into someone that you knew as you're looking for a church in a different part of the country altogether. Yeah, I'd just love to hear how, as you got started after college, how did your newfound faith start to direct the way that you thought about starting a career? Well, it impacted the way I thought about the woman that I was going out with, and it impacted the way I started thinking about business. And now, mind you, you know, being the son of a 10th grade educated man who was a mechanic and an 8th grade educated mom who was a maid, the only thing I could think of in going to USC, you know, you were kind of trained to make money. I mean, that was going to be my desire. And yet, you know, I knew money wasn't going to be everything. But I ended up in the commercial real estate business. And in the commercial real estate business is like any business. I mean, there's rough edges to it. But I knew in the midst of the rough edges that, you know, I had an opportunity to be different. And I found a gentleman who was also in that business and he began to disciple me. He's actually still my accountability partner all these years later. And I'm his accountability partner. And it allowed us to really talk about, you know, how does our faith influence the way we think about business? How does our faith influence the way we think about, in my case, I was working on large real estate transactions. Do I negotiate in an honorable way or do I negotiate in the world's way? And so we were part of a group and there was a gentleman who later became a pastor. His name is Randy Frazee. We were part of a group that actually talked about what does it mean to have faith in the workplace? The beauty of that is, is that it influenced the way I thought in business, but it also gave me a platform to talk to folks about Jesus. You know, in the scheme of things, I had a chance to talk to my assistant after her father died in a tragic car accident about the things of God, and she came to Christ. I worked with another person, and her grandfather was very ill. She was Jewish. She didn't know how to handle it. I got a chance to pray with her, and she still today would say that was a very meaningful moment in her life, although she was not interested in Jesus. You know, I saw my work as a platform to be able to come alongside people when they were struggling. And, you know, if you're in the real estate business for 17 years, like I was, we had three down cycles. And you talk about an opportunity to become a very important part of somebody's life. When their world has been shattered by a down cycle in the economy, they are very vulnerable and very open to things of God. And so out of that, I just used it as a platform to be able to talk to people about Jesus, to pray for them, to step in the gap when they were in struggle. And by God's grace, God used that. So you mentioned 17 years in real estate. What happened as you got towards the end of that? Where did things go from there? Well, I read a book when I was in my late 30s called Halftime, Moving from Success to Significance by Bob Buford. I read that book and I really, it began to stir in my heart that God might have something else in store. And like a classic business person, I wrote a white paper on moving from business to ministry. And I shared it with my wife at my birthday, my 38th birthday at a dinner club in downtown Dallas. We were on the 48th floor and I was, you know, we were overlooking this beautiful city. And I said, honey, I want to talk to you about something tonight that I've been wrestling through. And And she said, well, what is it? So I kind of walked her through this five-year plan. I said, you know, we're in the commercial real estate business and and we're going into an up cycle. And I think we can make 10 years worth of income in five years. And then I would like to go to seminary and I would like to be a pastor. And I actually shared with her this document that I'd written. 
at this dinner house, this beautiful dinner club downtown Dallas. We got done and I said, so what do you think? And her response was, wherever God calls you, I'm going with you. So we thought that was a journey towards the pastorate. I was on the board of directors of this ministry called Pine Cove. And about two years later, the person who had been their executive director resigned. I was on the search committee to help find his replacement. And, you know, what happens in life is that sometimes you miss a meeting. And I missed a meeting of the search committee. And the meeting I missed was them shifting from a ministry person with business experience to hire a business person with ministry passion. And I was sitting in a hotel room in Chicago and I got a fax, you know, those old flimsy faxes. You guys are too young to even know the flimsy faxes. (laughs) And it got brought to my room and I was reading this fax and I was looking at this job description and I was thinking, oh my goodness, they're looking for a business guy with ministry passion. Well, that was me. So I called my executive coach who basically coached men who were Christians in the marketplace And I sent it to her and I said, Carol, I'd love for you to tell me if you have anybody that you are coaching or have coached that fits this job description. And she said, well, it'll take me a couple of days to do a little bit of research because I've got a lot of clients and former clients. And she called me back a couple of days later and she says, well, I think I have somebody that's perfect for this job. And I said, well, who might that be? And her response was, I'm talking to him. And of course, that turned into a journey where then I had to resign from the search committee. Well, actually, I talked to my wife first, obviously, resigned from the search committee and they finished their search and then came to me and said, you know, we would like it to be you. And that was crazy because it was an 80 percent cut in pay. It was moving my wife and six kids from Dallas to Tyler, Texas. It was taking on a ministry that had phenomenal opportunity. I just I didn't fully understand all that that would be. Interestingly enough, in 17 years there, we grew 600%. We went from three camps to nine camps. We had 5,500 guests my first summer, 33,000 guests my last summer. And over the course of those 17 years, over 30,000 kids trusted Christ. But the irony was they needed somebody who was a leader. I had been a leader. They needed somebody. I mean, basically, I was in the real estate business. We had 1,500 acres of land, and we just kept building camps. In the real estate business, the way you made money was if your internal rate of return was high. If it went above 15%, the splits got better towards the developer. Well, at Pine Cove, we didn't work for an internal rate of return. We worked for an eternal rate of return. As people gave donor money to this ministry, we leveraged that money for the kingdom of God. You know, I think back on it's the 30,000 kids or so that trusted Christ, those are the ones we know about. There are many more we don't know about. And some of those kids that were in the early years, they're now married. They have kids themselves. And so the ripple effect, you know, I think of, you know, even what God did by kind of moving my heart towards ministry, I think all that was about was being available. Are you willing to be available to be used by God? And by God's grace, you know, he's been gracious enough not only to let it happen, but to let me actually, you don't know the full extent of it, but I've had a chance to talk to people who've said, you know what, I was there and I trusted Christ and it's changed my life forever. So, yeah, you can see how God, it wasn't just a split second decision. God was kind of working that out over quite a period of time, it sounds like. I'd love to just dig in a little bit more to some of that transition because we've 
heard a number of people on the podcast go through major decisions, and a lot of those look very differently. Sometimes that involves somebody saying in the same career, but giving away a large portion of that income or part of their business or things like that. And in your case, it involved pivoting careers completely. So I'd love to hear kind of the process of trying to listen to God through that. And I'm thinking specifically of somebody who might be in that season right now and is in that uncertainty and trying to kind of sort through the different options and the different things God might be leading them to, how to best understand where he's leading them in that moment. Well, a couple of things. One, first of all, that book, Halftime by Bob Buford, and Bob is with Jesus now, but that's a great book. And I think at the end of that book, in the current edition, they have a thing called Game Plan. And it's a series of questions that can be asked of you where you begin to really wrestle through, is this something I should be doing? And I would say it's not for everybody. It's not certainly not for the faint at heart. And, you know, not everybody can take an 80% cut and pay. Candidly, I couldn't. I shouldn't have. I mean, if you look at it from the world's eyes. But what I would say is this. You know, when I started getting involved in the discussion, and as it became, you know, a little bit clearer that I might be the final candidate, I grabbed a, a group of men who really knew me. And I actually put together what I call a personal board of directors. And we had a series of meetings just talking about the idea of doing this. And the beauty of that is, is that, you know, wisdom comes in numbers, right? They were all godly men. Linnell, my wife, said, I really don't want to be part of those meetings. I want them to have the freedom to ask you the extremely hard questions. They, I mean, it was a sweaty armpit moment, those meetings, because, you know, they leaned in pretty deeply. They, you know, one, can you really afford to do this? That was one question. Secondly, do you think by going from vocational ministry to full-time ministry that you get more strokes from God? Is he, do you think you're earning something? And I mean, it was very penetrating questions. You know, what will you do if it doesn't work out? What do you do if they don't ask you to be the guy? As you think this is what's going to happen, how are you going to handle the emotion of potentially being rejected? What if the board, and I was on the board, mind you, I was on this very board. What if the board says you're not the guy? These are people you're doing life with and you've been doing life with for a while. How will it impact your relationship with them? And candidly, it was a gift and it was very stressful because they were asking me the hard questions. So I would say if you're a man or a woman thinking about going from your current work life to vocational ministry or not-for-profit ministry, pull together a group of people that really know you well, that you will give them the right to ask you the tough questions. Because the tough questions, candidly, that's some of the way that your heart is revealed, right? If somebody leans into you and asks hard questions and they really know you, you can't fake it, right? You can't fake it till you make it. You've got to be able to do that. And these are all, happened to be all men who knew me well. And, you know, I mean, one of them went on to ask a question, is there anything in your life that if it got exposed would hurt the ministry? If you took this job, it was tough stuff. And by God's grace, thankfully, there was nothing that was out there that was going to sting the ministry or sting me, but it was a very difficult time. And then and the ministry was great, but mind you, at the time, it was kind of being run like a mom and pop. I remember very vividly that we would, if you can believe this, it was back in the day when you basically got checks and some credit cards. This is in 1998. We had a woman on staff who worked in our accounting department. She would take the checks, go photocopy them, put them on an easel, 
And then she would type them into an Excel, not even an Excel spreadsheet, a Lotus spreadsheet. And then she would upload it into this antiquated software. And I remember saying to her, I said, you know, just I'm a business guy. What if you just took that photocopy and just typed it right into the software? And it was like, <laughs> she thought that was the craziest idea. She goes, well, this is how we've always done it. And so, you know, taking an organization that was a great organization, but just bringing basic business principles into the fray to be able to operate more efficiently. And ironically, when I got there in 1998, we had three accounting staff. When I left in 2015, mind you, we went from about a $5 million ministry to a $33 million ministry with technology. We only had three accounting staff. We leveraged, we took the principles of business that God has allowed to be created over the course of time, and we applied those into the organization. And by God's grace, God literally took those principles and multiplied them in such a way where lives were radically altered by the gospel. Mario, I'm curious, what was the response from the real estate company when you actually made an announcement that you were going to change careers? Well, it was very interesting. So we had our operating company and then we had our investment company. And the operating company, of course, I ran the Dallas and Denver office and I was a partner in the firm. It just so happened that all the people that were working for me were believers. And when I announced it, they said, oh, my goodness, I could see that. I could see the fact that you would go into full time ministry. And so I think for them, they were a little less shocked. The president of the company, he was a little bit surprised because we had this investment arm and I was in the prospectus and we were out trying to raise $500 million to acquire industrial office and retail buildings. He was like, I don't totally understand it, but I know you and I've known you for a long time. So I guess I get it. The funny one was the leader of our investment company in Chicago. He called me up and said, Mario, you've been kind of our fair-haired child. We've been modeling a lot of what we've been doing in these different markets after the way you've been doing this. He said, I just want you to know if, if you ever want to come back, if this is not what you're supposed to do. I think he said, when your Walden Pond experience is over and you want to come <laughs> back, just let me know. And I remember kind of on the phone talking to him, and I won't say his name because he might hear this podcast, but I said it. I said, my friend. So what you need to know is I'm being called by God to do this. And I said, so I don't think God is capricious. I don't think it would just change like that. I think I've been called. And I said, I'm honored by what you would say, but I think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I couldn't see him. It was you know not the day of doing what we're doing today, seeing each other on a screen, but I could hear him shake his head. I mean, I think he thought it was the nuttiest thing in the world. What's ironic is, is through, a, I just got back from Scotland celebrating my 40th anniversary with my wife. And I ran into one of that guy's friends. And so I LinkedIn messaged him and said, hey, I want to know. I ran into your friend. And I said, I just want to let you know what I'm doing. And I'm running this ministry in Africa. He was like, he didn't even know how to respond. He said, well, I'm not interested in giving. I don't know why you're telling me this. I said, I was just <laughs> connecting with you, brother. I mean, but I'm not sure he ever really got it. But there is a fun story. So I left my job in April. We're now starting camp. We're halfway through. And the president of the company calls me and says, I need you to come to Houston. I said, I'm in the middle of camp. I can't just come to Houston. I've got shorts and a T-shirt running around with these kids and family campers. And he said, no, no, I think it'd be really important for you to come. And I said, okay, I'll come, but I'm not coming back to work. He goes, I'm not asking you to come back to work. I just need you to come see me. So I drove to Houston, put on my old suit, 
didn't wear a tie, didn't wear a jacket, just went to his office. We sat down, we small talked for a second. And he said, Mario, I'm about to do something with you, but that doesn't really make sense, but I'm going to do this. And he slid a piece of paper across the table and he said, Mario, if you had gone to work for one of our competitors, I would not be doing this. But since you've gone to work for God, I am fully vesting you in all of our partnerships. He didn't have to do that. And for the next 10 years, on a quarterly basis, I got mailbox money. And that mailbox money paid for all seven of my kids to go to college. And I got a chance to talk to that gentleman recently. And I just said, and he's now in his 70s. I said, I just need you to know, if you hadn't done that, I probably would have been in the not-for-profit work for 10 years. But I said, here I am 25 years later because of your generosity. He goes, my son works for me. Can I get him and have you share it with him? <laughs> and I share and, and the guy got all emotional. He said, you know, he goes, I just felt like I was supposed to do it. And the sweet thing is, is he was a believer then, but his faith has totally taken off. And I think God put it on his heart. And so, you know, for that, I was blessed. I think in the, at the end of time, he's blessed because he's got an assist on all these kids that have come to Christ, man. His faithfulness allowed it to happen. Yeah, I love that story, because I feel like it's the other half of the story that we don't always get to see. And, you know, you're giving him this 25 year update. Think about how many stories of generosity where we're, God just calls us to do something and we do it. And we have no idea what happens from there. Every once in a while, you get one of those kind of affirmation feedbacks like that. But for every one of those, there's probably another 10 or 100 that you won't know until, you know, the other side of things where everything becomes clear. So it's so wonderful that, you know, you can see the effect of the generosity on huge returns through your life and what you've been able to do with the ministries that you've been a part of and him enabling you to do that in a major way. So I just love how that all connects together. Well, and there's another sweet story in all this is that when I took the job at this place, Pine Cove Christian Camps, I went and set up an appointment to meet Bob Buford because I wanted to thank him for the privilege of being able to do that based on the book that he wrote. And I'm sitting with Bob and Bob said, well, did you know I was on the first board of directors at Pine Cove? <laughs> I did not know about that. that. And he said, and not only that, he said, my son Ross trusted Christ at Pine Cove as a third grader. And he said, and Ross tragically drowned in his early 20s. And he says, my wife, Linda, and I, our hope was the letter that Ross wrote us from camp telling us that he trusted Christ. You just don't know. The reality is you don't know what happens in life. It could be a casual word to a friend. It could be a book that you write. It could be, you know, something as crazy as what has gone on in my life. And yet you just don't know, but God knows. I mean, that's the beauty of it all is that before God uttered the words in the beginning, he knew Bob Buford would write that book and he knew I would read that book. And he knew that I would go work at this ministry that he was on the original board of directors of that ultimately when his child was a boy, a third grader, that he would trust Christ. And he would, God knew when his son would go to be with Jesus forever. When I went and thanked him, it kind of a crazy little day. I said, you know, Bob, I just want to thank you. And when we got done and with the whole conversation, he said, you know what? Thank you for coming by. 
he says, you know, there were lepers that were healed, but only one went and thanked Jesus. Mm -hmm. He said, thank you for being the one. Yeah. And I think that's a great lesson there because how many times have we been impacted by somebody and even thought about saying something or even just sending a message and not end up doing it? I can think of many times in my life, but I think it opens up the door for stories just like that. That's right. That's right. So you told us a little bit about your time at Pine Cove. Where did things go from there that eventually brought you to some of the work that you're doing today? When I was at Pine Cove, one of the things that I had, had been burdened by is that, you know, a lot of Christian ministries don't do a great job of succession planning. So I identified a couple of younger guys in our organization, and I invested in them with the idea that hopefully someday they would be the one that would have the baton passed to them. And in the probably latter part of 2014, I remember driving along a road in Dallas, Texas, and the Lord, literally, I was on my cell phone going into a school zone, which in that part of Texas, you get a cell phone ticket in a school zone. It's a lot of money. And so I was listening to voicemails going into the school zone. I put my phone down and the Lord, almost like a loud whisper said, you're done at Pine Cove. And I was like, what? I just finished my review. I had two different assistants, one in Dallas, one in Tyler, Texas. And I just finished his review and I got home that night and I said, Linnell, we need to go to dinner somewhere. I need to talk to you about something that happened today. And I shared with her at dinner, I said, the Lord laid it on my heart today that I'm done at Pine Cove. And my sweet wife said, well, actually, you've been done. And I said, I beg your pardon. And she says, you've been done. I said, how long have I been done? She says, you've probably been done for two years. And I said, well, if you thought that, why didn't you tell me? And she said, well, I felt like it was important for God to tell you. So I've been praying that he would. And I said, well, today's the day. And I said, well, have I been doing a bad job? And she said, you have not been doing a bad job, but you've been doing the job out of duty instead of delight. And so, you know, that put me on a journey. It took me, I think that was like October. It took me until January to have the courage to quit. And I ended up talking to a series of people who've been either in the pastorate or in different settings who felt like it was time after a long period of time of leading something to leave. And I actually met with this one guy. I was meeting with him and he quit his pastorate after 25 years and he had 10 campuses. And I said, so I said, how did you make the decision to leave? And he said, well, I had a friend ask me a question. He said, when he asked the question, he asked me was, when I think about the future of the church, is it in high definition color or in black and white? And I thought, wow, that's a good question. So then he, on the phone, he leaned in and said, so Mario, when you think about Pine Cove and its future, is it in high definition color or black and white? He said, that's what I'd like you to think about and give me a call in a couple of days. And I said, I don't even have to wait a couple of days. It's in black and white. He said, bro, you're done. And so I went to the board in January and I resigned and I was going to take three months off. Anyway, in those three months, you know, people were kind enough to call and say, you know, would you consider doing this and doing that? And kind of my hero was a guy by the name of Dr. Tim Keller. They had a need. The need was to have somebody be a fundraiser regionally for them. And so I went to work for Dr. Tim Keller for Redeemer City to City, their urban church planting network. And I worked on fundraising. I helped out a little bit with some strategy. Working for Dr. Keller, they had planted 400 churches in urban settings around the world, including more than 100 in New York City. What was interesting about that was only nine of those churches in New York City were Presbyterian. He planted Anglican churches, Baptist churches, community churches, 
whatever fit the neighborhood is what they planted. And they went through church intensives. What I would say happened there was, is that I think God gave me desire for the world, for something more than just a region. And I did that for several years, commuting to New York, which is hard to do. And then a friend of mine was running a missions agency, and he had nine kids and a sick wife, hadn't had much time off over the course of seven years. And he said, why don't you come lead this ministry with me? And so I became the president of this missions agency. We only worked in scary places in the world, a lot of 1040 windows countries. And so I was there to help him out for a couple of years, and I did. And then this ministry that I work for today called and said, we need some leadership. We need somebody who has business experience. In a perfect world, we need somebody who has camp experience. And we have real estate that's under construction. We need to figure out how to finish it. So that goes back to, you know, that scarlet thread, right? I mean, here I'd run a camp. They had a camp in Zambia. They had real estate that was not complete. I developed office buildings and industrial buildings. They needed a leader. I'd had 17 years, actually more than that. At that point, 21 years of leadership experience. Anyway, be careful what you're willing to go meet about because you might end up running a ministry in Africa. (laughs) So anyway, that's been five years and it's not been an easy ride. I mean, you're in a cross-cultural context. You have 800 staff in Lusaka, Zambia. We have 14,000 students in 22 schools. We've got 35 staff here in the United States. We got currency exchange. We got Zambian law. You got a seven hour time change. It's a journey, man. It's an adventure. More, it's an, well, it's a journey too. It's a journey and an adventure. So, Mario, could you give us a little bit of background on Family Legacy, how it was founded, and what the mission statement is? So, Family Legacy was founded in the early 2000s. Our founder was a missionary kid that grew up in Zambia. His dad was a pastor. He came back to the United States for college, went to Baylor University. He was a successful businessman and he felt kind of called. He was actually somebody who he and his family went to Pine Cove and at a closing celebration at Pine Cove, he turned to his wife and said, I think we can do this in Zambia. We could do a day camp there. I think it was the next summer that he did day camp with some kids and he brought some Americans there. And that turned into something called Camp Life. Since the inception, over 4,000 unique individuals have traveled to Zambia and have been part of this camp experience. They have the camp experience. They get a chance to meet these kids. They come back to the United States and they advocate for them so that these kids can be sponsored so they can go to school. He also had a burden for the extremely vulnerable kids. And so there's a residential facility called the Tree of Life, and it has 500 of the most vulnerable kids. One in four of those kids have HIV. Kids have sickle cell. Some have are amputees. Some have are burn victims. 100% of them are extremely vulnerable. Some have been abandoned. Some, you know, obviously lost parents to the HIV AIDS epidemic in Africa. And, you know, our desire there with those kids is to bring them in, help them work through their trauma, help them become educated, help them understand who Jesus is and why that's important for all of eternity. And we educate them. But the goal there is, is to bring them in, to work through whatever the issue is of the day, to find somebody safe for them to live with, and then to move them back into the community. So the goal there is reintegration. We have some kids that have been in school there for nine or 10 years, but at the end of the day, those are the ones that have nobody they can go to. So we keep them until they have finished. But it's a ministry that is over 20 years old now. 
We've educated or in the process of educating over 20,000 students. We will have over 900 kids walk the stage for 12th grade this year in December. We have just shy of 600 kids that are either in university or in certified trades or in a gap year program. Candidly, at the end of the day, it, it may be better for them to get a trade certificate than a college degree because it's still an emerging third world economy. That economy there has actually shrunk by about 10% in the last three and a half years, which makes it tougher and tougher for college graduates to get a job. They have real high unemployment in Zambia. The median wage is about $1.90 a day. And 100% of our kids live below the global poverty line, not the Zambia poverty line, not the Africa poverty line, the global poverty line. Zambia is one of the poorest countries in the world. And our mission statement is that family legacy exists to glorify God. And we believe we do so by empowering, equipping, and encouraging kids to live up to their God-given potential. And we do it in a holistic fashion. Obviously, we gospel them. We want them to know Jesus. We want them to grow in their relationship with Christ. And everybody that's in our schools, they start their school day with a devotional. Our desire is, is that these kids would have a firm understanding of the 50 straight great stories of Scripture and that that would give them something to hang on to as they go through life. We provide food for every child that goes to school every day. And of course, the kids that live in our residential village, they get three square meals a day. We have a quad certified infectious disease doctor. He provides medical care for all 14,000 of our kids. He has a whole team of staff that helps these kids work through everything from, you know, scrapes and bruises to broken bones to you name it. And then the biggest thing that we've been working on recently is that we've come to realize that many of these kids have multiple trauma markers. I mean, poverty is a trauma marker. If you've lost a parent to AIDS, it's a trauma marker. If your father abandoned your family, it's a trauma marker. If you've been physically abused or sexually abused, it's a trauma marker. So we worked with an organization in Dallas called the Momentus Institute, and it's not a Christian organization, but they have helped train our staff in biblical social emotional learning. And it's geared towards helping kids unpack their trauma. And we took their curriculum and we biblicized it with their permission. So one of the values in the Momentous Institute curriculum is that you have value to a child. Well, what's the scripture that goes along with you have value? Well, the scriptures say in Psalm 139, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. As a matter of fact, the language in the Hebrew is architecture language, that the God of the universe uniquely designed you to be exactly the way you are. And so we've taken every module of the Momentous Institute curriculum, and we've added scripture to that. All of our teachers and our staff have gone through that training. For many of them, they have trauma that they needed to work through. As a matter of fact, one of our principals at one of our schools last summer, I was visiting one of our schools And she came up to me and she says, Mr. Mario, they're so formal there. Mr. Mario, I want to thank you for biblical, social, emotional learning. I've been practicing the principles with my husband and my children, and it's impacting my family. And our student absentee rate has gone down. Our bad behavior has gone down. We have calm down corners at all of our schools that if a child gets worked up, we send them to the calm down corner and it says, what feeling are you having? And then we have little booklets that talk about that feeling. And as you read those little booklets, you know, if it says, I'm anxious today, if that's the feeling you pick, well, you look at the booklet, it's a cartoon booklet, 
It talks about in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace that passes all understanding shall be given unto you. And so we help these kids unpack their trauma. And all of this is delivered on the platform of an education. And so those 800 staff, they're the ones that are, they're the hands and feet of Christ to those kids. I say, listen, Zambia is headquarters. We're just support. We're just raising the money to help make that happen. We have 9,000 sponsors that sponsor these kids. And we have about 2,000 kids that are currently unsponsored that got unsponsored during COVID and, you know, trying to get them responsored. We raise general funds to help cover the gap. But then we have Americans going. On June the 1st, I'm leaving for Zambia. We'll have 250 Americans go to Zambia this summer and do a week at camp. You know, Cody or Keelan, if you came to camp, there'd be 10 little boys that would have your name on their wrist. And when you're at camp, you'd get there on Saturday. We would train you how to be a camp counselor. They get bust up. It's a day camp program. If you didn't know how to do it, we'd teach you how to share the gospel. We would talk to you about how to have this experience. We've been giving you devotionals for the 10 weeks up to it. And then you're going to have a devotional every day. The theme this summer is follow me as I follow Christ. And we would give you curriculum. You're going to get in one-on-one time. You're going to share the gospel. An interpreter is going to take it from English to Nyanja. And these kids are going to hear the gospel in their language. And if you blow it, they're going to correct it. It's like auto-tune. <laughs> you know, Taylor Swift uses auto-tune at concerts is what I've been told. But if you blow the gospel, they'll correct it. And the kids are going to hear the gospel and have a chance to respond. It's absolutely amazing. It'd be nice if sharing the gospel always worked like that. Yeah. So yeah a little yeah. auto-correct there. A little auto-correct, yeah. Yep. So I know that one thing that comes to mind with American ministries or ministries that have a portion of their work from the U.S. working in countries abroad elsewhere is, is creating dependency. And I know that you stated one of your core values is creating empowerment or empowering these kids. And so maybe you can talk about how you guys approach avoiding dependency and trying to empower the kids and the other people that you guys serve. That is my favorite question. You know, this ministry, we're going through a transition now. Our board of directors and our staff have all gone through the When Helping Hurts training. And the Right Now Media has a Hurting Without Helping video series. We've actually worked with the Alliance for Children Everywhere and Save the Children and Hope International and kids around the world. And what we've done is we've actually stepped back and said, what is the best way to interact with our constituency, the kids, and how do they best interact with the Americans? And somebody once wrote a book called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. And you know what? Candidly, it does take a village to raise a child. I think in our history, we kind of suggested that the most important person was the American sponsor. I'm going to send you a slide and somehow, hopefully you can, it's a podcast, so nobody will see the slide, but it's a great, it's my, my new favorite slide. The hero in the story is not the American. I mean, ultimately, the hero in the story is Jesus. But the hero in the story is the caregiver. If we can come alongside that caregiver and provide them the tools to really help these kids, then that's going to be the win. As a matter of fact, in December, we had graduation, and they wanted me to do the keynote address. And I said, I don't want to be the one doing the keynote address. These kids don't need to see me. They need to see a Zambian that has 
overcome the odds. And so what we've come to realize is, is that if we can empower that caregiver, we can make a difference. So with Hope International, with their help, we've started savings clubs in all of our communities. With another organization that has, it's called Literacy Evangelism. We use their tools to teach the caregivers how to read. We have a caregiver right now who is actually going to go back and I think take her 12th grade government exam like eight or nine years later because she now knows how to read. We are working with a group. The program is called Parenting Without Violence, and we've renamed it Positive Parenting. And we have caregivers that are coming into our program, and they're looking at the positive parenting curriculum, and we're teaching them biblical principles on how to care for their kids. How do you care for them where you can discipline them, but you don't have to beat them, which is the cultural norm. And so we think the more we equip the guardians and the more we help these kids understand, it's very important for them to read on grade and to know Jesus and to understand the stories of scripture and to learn nutrition. What we tell them is we want you to be a giver to the community live in, not a taker. And so we're working hard on helping them not be dependent. And it's taken a bit of time to actually re-engineer our constituency to help them understand, listen, if you provide everything for them, you become kind of like a savior, small s. And if you do that, then they don't need the savior, big s. You wouldn't do that with your own children. So why would you do that with a child 9,500 miles away? And so it's taken some time to kind of re-engineer, retool. But what's beautiful is, is this little slide that has the caregiver as the quarterback of the family. You got the caregiver, you got the kids' community and their friends, you got the local church, you got our teaching staff and our counselors. And it just so happens, instead of the main person being the sponsor, the sponsor is one of many that are impacting these kids. And we encourage the sponsors listen, if they reach out to you on social media and they want you to send them money, please don't send them money. If they've got a problem, have them reach out to the organization and we'll assess what the problem is. Like in the midst of COVID, I mean, they had a food scarcity during COVID. We shipped 5 million meals a year to Zambia. We took food out of our warehouse to help feed families. I mean, we wanted to be there. Matter of fact, some of our Zambian staff that are Americans or American staff that live in Zambia didn't want to come home. They said, if we leave now, how committed does that make them think we are to them? So some of them just stuck in there with them, stayed in a foreign country with COVID to really make a difference. There's a story in this that really makes the point of all this. We had these Americans go last summer and we were doing Camp Life, which is this program that we do with Americans coming and doing a short-term mission trip. They meet the kids on Monday and on Thursdays, we go into the communities. And we used to go to the communities with a tool called an Cube, and we would share the gospel door to door. What we found out was the bus was parking in the same place every week. And so every week we were going to the same door to door sharing the gospel. So one of our Zambian staff, and this is the beauty of letting them have value. They are really bright, really energetic, really creative. One of our Zambian staff said, what if instead of going door to door sharing the gospel, what if we partner with a local church and we had the caregivers come in and meet the Americans and let them kind of see who the Americans are that might help advocate for their child. So here we were, the caregivers came in. We didn't know who would come. 
80% of them came. It was amazing. And they would see the songs we would sing at camp. They got to see some of the skits. And then a very sweet thing happened. The American, who'd been hanging out with these kids all week, would share a character quality certificate. Would say, these are the characteristics I've seen in your child. The one that you're either caring for or you're the parent of. We had one story that just stuck out to me. Her name was Gladys. Gladys was like eight or nine years old. Her American was a young lady who was just graduated from college. And she sat there with Gladys and all the caregivers and all the girls in her group. But she said to Gladys, Gladys, you are courageous. You are godly and you're a servant. And the interpreter said, Gladys, you are courageous, godly and a servant. And Gladys got a big smile on her face. And then we looked over and I was right there watching this. And the caregiver began to cry. The caregiver was Gladys's aunt. She cares for five kids. None of them are her own. And the interpreter says, why are you crying? And she said, well, nobody has ever, ever says anything positive about our kids. They're a burden. I mean, we're poor. I mean, between the lines, they're a burden. Well, what happened that day? Identity got spoken into Gladys. Gladys's aunt got a different perspective of Gladys. Gladys's peers got a different perspective and they had character quality certificates that were shared with them. At the end, one of the girls grabbed an evangelist. So now we're not going door to door to evangelize. We now have the caregivers there. And one of the girls grabs the evangelist, shares the gospel. The interpreter is because the girl tried to share it in English. The interpreter is translating it to Nyanja and the girl in Nyanja says, would any of you like to trust Christ today? And who raises her hand? But Gladys is caregiver. And Gladys' caregiver trusts Christ. Well, what happened was Gladys had trusted Christ on Tuesday. So, two new creations, identity spoken into her, and then the pastor of Chianda Baptist Church comes up to the front of the room, grabs the microphone and says, for all of you that live in this community that have had a chance to be here today, if you do not have a church home, we meet at 9 o'clock and 11.30. We'd love to have you. I mean, gentlemen, it doesn't get any better than that. I can't make that story up. I mean, that's God at work. I mean, you now flip it back to being in business. I was getting wealthy on an internal rate of return. And now I'm in a ministry that has an eternal rate of return. People are coming to Christ a girl's getting an education. Chances are now Gladys's aunt, who's a caregiver, who's caring for five kids, she might go do English as a second language. I mean, who knows what the long-term outcome of that is? So the idea here is Gladys has dignity. Her aunt has dignity. We want them to live independent lives, not dependent on an American. We want them to flourish. We want them to know that they can do it. And, you know, in some ways, so, you know, people say, well, Mario, why did you take this job? I didn't know other than God called me. And then it hit me one day. I grew up in East Los Angeles. My mom was a maid. My dad was a mechanic. They had an eighth grade and a 10th grade education. And by the way, they were both alcoholics. And in most cases in these homes in Zambia, they're alcoholics. It just took time for me to realize why I was doing it. Yeah, like you said, 
God weaves that story together from well before we have any idea what he's doing. And it often doesn't make sense in the beginning. And it's only in hindsight that it kind of all comes together. One of the things that I love about that story that you just shared is that right there in the end of that moment is the local church in Zambia right there able to take that family in and I'm sure many others along with it. And that church is in a very real sense, a cornerstone of that community and is the one taking that baton and running with it. And, you know, when we talk about evangelism all around the world, I think it's easy for that stuff to be lost, especially when there isn't churches like that already in place. But to have that local church right there able to continue on that discipleship process, I think is so critical beyond the initial acceptance of Christ, which is, you know, an incredibly powerful moment, but just the very beginning of a whole changed life. Absolutely. And not only that, so we have at least one church partner that we rely on in each of the communities. And of course, we've built these schools. What happens to the schools on Saturdays and Sundays? Well, we don't have school. So we've actually, we have churches that now meet in our schools, not all of them, but in some of them. So we've actually we're in essence partnering with the local church and not only in what we've just described, but on a Sunday morning and it's in a third world context and no money changes hands, man. We're like, please use it. You know, we want to make sure these churches are theologically sound and that they line up with our statement of faith, but by God's grace, I mean, it's a very unique opportunity to impact them. And listen, that American, that sweet girl that spoke identity in the Gladys's life, she got on a plane on Friday and flew home. So that local church and the community of our team at the schools, they're going to be the ones that are going to impact Gladys for the long run. You know, it may be that that girl pays for Gladys to go to school, but that's the role that she will play in the long run. Well, Mario, it's easy to see why you are passionate about the work that you're doing. And I hope that when you think about the future, it's HD, full color. But I'd love to hear what are you most excited about when you do think about the future? Well, I would think, you know, for me, I'm not a youngster, so I have actually been putting together a great long-term team. We hired a country director in Zambia. That gentleman is in his late 40s. He's an elder in his church. He worked for World Vision for 20 years. He is a shepherd and a remarkable business guy. He's got an undergraduate degree in finance and a master's in industrial engineering. So we've been molding and shaping a team there for the long run. And then I've just hired a COO seven months ago, and he was the COO of a privately held company. He's in his early 40s. We have a woman that we hired from one of the big consulting companies who did an externship with us, and she's our VP of strategic initiatives. And so, you know, like all ministries, you typically have an older crowd and a younger crowd, and there's a kind of a gap in the middle. We call it the donut hole. And so we've been filling that donut hole with very talented 20s, 30s, and 40s with the idea that, you know, the truth is anybody that's the CEO of an organization, you're interim. You're going to take that baton from somebody and you're going to put that baton in somebody's hand at some point in time, unless you crash the plane, right? <laughs> and so, you know, am I in the exchange zone yet? I don't know. But what I am doing is, is I want to be faithful. We had a succession plan at Pine Cove and the guy that I handed the baton to, it was virtually seamless. He's done a fantastic job. I thought I was a visionary. He's 
blown me away. And he was exactly what they needed at that time. He's doing a fantastic job. I talked to him yesterday as they start training summer staffers for this summer, where they're going to have 40,000 campers this summer, 40,000. You know, when I left 2014 was my last year, last summer there, they had 33,000 campers. So they've grown it by what? 22, 23%. Just making it happen, man. Just by God's (laughs) grace. That is a lot of campers. So where can our listeners find out more about Family Legacy and get connected if they're interested? Thanks for asking. You can go to familylegacy.com and that will give you everything from, you know, how we started, kind of what our mission is, what volunteer opportunities are like. You can actually go to Zambia, go to Camp Life. We also have vision trips. We have six or seven vision trips a year and there's an opportunity just to go see it in action. And listen, if you've gone to Africa to go to Camp Life, which is what we do in June and early July, you might as well throw on a trip to Victoria Falls or Cape Town or have a photo safari somewhere. And that same thing holds true if you go on a vision trip. We actually have an initiative to help provide scholarship funding, and it's called Hope for Zambia. That gives you more generic information. You can go to hopeforzambia.com if you want to give scholarship money. But familylegacy.com allows you to you know, consider sponsoring a child that I mentioned earlier. We have 2,000 or so unsponsored kids that lost their sponsorship early in COVID, and we haven't been able to go to Africa. We didn't go to Africa for 34 months because of COVID, but we have people going again. And But if you'd love to sponsor a child, you can do that. If you just want to communicate with me, you can go to mario at familylegacy.com. You can email me. I actually check all my own emails. I don't have an assistant. I'm kind of better off that way. <laughs> and would love to hear from you and love to share more about the ministry that we're part of. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone listening who's excited about the work that Mario and his team are able to carry out through their partnerships in Zambia. It sounds really, really incredible what you're doing. I would encourage our listeners to check out the website and get involved. So Mario, as we get towards the end of our episode here, I just want to leave some time for our manager's minute We like to end every episode with a practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So, Mario, do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Well, I would say this. You know, when you think about your life, I mean, first of all, what we know is all the money that you are responsible for, whether you're managing it or it's your own, is God's money. And he's given you the opportunity to be a fiduciary a fiduciary to God, the God of the universe who gives us life and breath. He's given us the opportunity to be a steward. And when you think about the concept of stewardship, you are in essence entrusted on behalf of somebody else. And so I would say, you know, you have an opportunity. You can look at it all as an internal rate of return opportunity, or you can say, how do I invest this into something that would have an eternal rate of return? I would even suggest, you know, listen, And I'm a little bit of a weird bird when it comes to raising money. When I meet with people, I share vision and I don't ask them for money per se. I ask them to prayerfully consider how they might be involved. Or first of all, if they should be involved and if God says yes, how they should be involved. And that's, you know, you have a responsibility as a steward. If you're looking at an organization, whether it's Christian or not, really understand what are the outcomes What really happens with your money? You know, I've been in full-time Christian ministry for 25 years, and I've interacted with a lot of Christian ministries, and some of them just aren't good stewards. You know, for me, when somebody gives us money, 
They've now passed the baton of fiduciary to me. I am now accountable to God. And so I take that very, very seriously. You know, we want to be good stewards of the resources that God has blessed us with. And I would encourage people that whatever organization they come alongside, make sure that they have a stewardship mentality as well. I mean, I think that is the absolute key. And candidly, you know, there are a lot of people out there that are great money managers. Make sure that they have an absolute heart for the things of God and that they are gospel people. Listen, it says, go, therefore, and make disciples throughout the world. And sometimes it means you go and sometimes it means you fund. But find organizations that are leading people to Christ and making disciples, that they have a long term view a multiplication view of how to impact generations. If you were to see our logo, our logo, the family legacy logo has a ripple in it because we believe that we will have a ripple effect on generations to come. And candidly, we all do. And the question is, is the ripple effect a good one or is it one that wouldn't please God? That's a decision we all have to make. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to be here with us today, Mario. I've really enjoyed hearing how God has worked throughout your life and how you've been obedient and surrounded yourself from your wife to people you've worked with in business to people who really understand who you are. And as you follow promptings from the Holy Spirit, that's something to celebrate. And it's not from a scarcity mindset, but from an abundance mindset that you've been able to serve throughout the decades in various capacities. And just thank you for your leadership and for sharing your story with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun and to God be the glory for all things that he has done. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. And finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 76. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. <music>